This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. All right, good to see everybody here this morning and uh, continue our, our series this summer. Uh, we are in the middle of a 12-week series. We're halfway through the summer halfway through the series, and I've appreciated the messages that we've been doing and the ones that other guys have done, especially last week, Ramon uh, did a message on Jesus and his temptations, and Andy did a message on the prodigal son, and Tom's getting ready to do one uh, soon, and and then Bernie and Steve are going to do one as well, so I don't think I let, did I leave anybody out? Um, Anyway, I've I've enjoyed them greatly, and really have, and, and the ones that I've been doing, uh, how do we come up with these, these different sermons as we asked our church back in February, tell us your favorite Bible stories. Give us three, top three. And a bunch of people did. A bunch of people didn't. I'm not sure what that says about those who didn't. But a bunch of people did, and then we kind of took them and whittled them down to a dozen. And uh, use Some of the stories, by the way, are really familiar, like the prodigal son and like Gethsemane. And, and uh, you notice you saw the whale out, I think, in the lobby. Jonah's coming soon. And, and uh, some of those stories are just really, really familiar to us. But one like the one today are not just super familiar stories that we think about, that we remember, that we heard over and over in Sunday school and in church. In fact, th- those stories caused me to have to go and, and do a little digging in the Word and... and uh, and, and do some studying more so than, than some of the others, and, and I appreciate that about them. Um, it's a very intriguing story today. Actually, it's a compilation of several stories, uh, and I hope it's going to be life-changing for somebody this morning. Um, last week, we heard about um, Jesus being tested, going into the desert to be tested by God, to be tempted by the devil uh, before launching out into his public ministry. And the purpose of the test was to find out if he was up to the task. Because what was ahead of him would be the greatest trial and the greatest uh, endeavor that any man had ever done in the history of this planet. Was he up to the task? And so I think today is a good follow-up because the task included being targeted for assassination. Jesus was targeted to be killed. And uh, so we're going to look at that this morning and, uh, and, and, and see how that kind of progressed in his life. Very early in his ministry, we have the story, the Gospels record this story, where he, uh, right, right from the very get-go, one of the first things he did was he went on a Saturday, Sabbath day, to the synagogue. And as the habit in the synagogue was, and I've, I've never been to a synagogue service, but from reading in the scriptures and studying, uh, then the rabbi would say, does anybody, would anybody like to get up? And maybe there's a guest rabbi here today would like to get up and read scripture. And Jesus got up and he was in his home country of Galilee. This is where he, he was kind of familiar with the people, the local people, as Jesus the carpenter son of Joseph and Mary, and he gets up and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. He begins to read, and he reads, and he said, and that chapter says, it talks about, about, about the anointed coming and blind men seeing and lame men being healed and so forth and so on. And he says, today, this scripture is being fulfilled in your presence. I'm sure people thought, who does he think he is? You know, I mean, that scripture's talking about when Messiah comes. And we, we know this guy. He grew up right here in Nazareth. Who, 
what in the world's up with him? And so he, he continues to talk with them, and they have dialogue, and, and, uh, and, and he, he, but he begins in this conversation in the synagogue with the, the folks there. He begins to enrage the religious status quo by his teaching. Luke records this in chapter 4, verses 28 to 30. And when they heard this, something he said. When they heard this, Everyone in the synagogue was enraged. I mean, it made everybody there mad. They were really ticked off, enraged. They got up and drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. There was the first attempt to kill Jesus right there. I mean, right from the get-go. They tried to throw him over a cliff. And you, well, you, maybe you stop and wonder if you don't go back and look at what, what did he say that he got them, that got them so upset? Well, what he did was he took a jab at the false notion that God only cares for the Jews. Instead, he told them, hey, Jewish people, and he was Jew, Jewish himself, he told them God was going to give his grace to the Gentiles as well. And that stirred up their anger. And you know why it stirred up their anger? Because they were racists. They believed in this Jewish superiority. They were racists. They wouldn't have liked you and me, who are Gentiles. And by the way, if you're here today and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, no matter what your skin color, your ethnic background, you're Gentile. They would not have liked you. And Jesus challenged that racism. So they began from that point on to target Jesus from death. Now, Jesus, if you, you look at his three years of ministry, he was a man on the go. He would go up to Galilee and do some things up there. And then he would say, let's go down south to Judea and, and Jerusalem and spend time down there. He grew, he, in Galilee, as I said, was where he grew up. And then he would travel the 90 miles or so south to Judea, which is where he was born in Bethlehem. And he would go from Bethlehem, I think it's about seven miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and spend time in and around Jerusalem. There was the temple in Jerusalem. There were the, the priests and the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin were the 70 Jewish elders who ruled Judaism. And he would challenge them, and he would say things to get them uh, stirred up a bit. You might be familiar, by the way, with one member of the Jewish ruling body. If you know John chapter 3, when Jesus was there, and a man came to Jesus by night named Nicodemus, he was a member of that of that group, who became a Christian. The Gospels tell us that it didn't take long before Jesus really began to rankle the Jews in and around Jerusalem. And in John 5, the story goes that he heals a man who had been sick, been ill, been lame for 38 years. And I'm thinking that's got to be most of his life, that he's been ill. And Jesus simply said these words to him, pick up your mat, get up, and walk. That's what Jesus said to him. And the Bible says, John tells us in John 5, 9, instantly the man got well. He picked up his mat and he started to walk. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Knowing Christ is not about religion. Knowing Christ isn't about religion. You may be here this morning, you may be thinking, well, I'm here doing something religious. Let me explain to you why what we're talking about this morning and who we're talking about is not about religion. 
Knowing Christ is about Christ coming to us and loving us and dying for us, doing everything for us. Now, let me explain a little bit more. Jesus went to this man, and he says to this man, who's obviously paralyzed in some form or fashion, and he says to the man, ask him a question. And the question was, hey, would you like to be healed? Would you like to be made well? Would you like to be able to walk maybe for the first time in your life? He asks the man the question. And of course, the guy, you know, is, is, is going to answer affirmatively. But Jesus was, was uh, pointing out something to him about the difference between Jesus and religion. And I'll explain that. Like, like saving faith requires an understanding that I cannot save myself. Right? If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a believer in Jesus because somehow, some way, somebody got the news to you that there was nothing you could do in your entire life, good, bad, indifferent, to qualify you for heaven. There's nothing you could do, not keeping Ten Commandments, not joining a church, not being baptized, not being a good person, good husband, good wife, whatever it might be, nothing you could do. The Bible says all of our good works, all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Nothing we could do. And realizing there was nothing you could do, you found out that Jesus did everything for you, and so you believed in what he did and who he is, and you became a Christian. That's what Jesus is going to show in this story. He wanted to hear from this man that he was helpless. And he wanted to hear from this man that he could not get to the place to be healed. And there's another whole sermon here on Jesus telling him not only to pick up your mat, which shows that he was healed, but also to walk. He didn't say just pick up your mat. He said walk. In other words, Jesus, well, now I want you to live like you've been healed. I want people to see the difference that I've just made in your life. Now, where were they? They were at a place called the Pool of Bethesda in Maryland. <laughs> Maryland. <laughs> Anybody from Maryland here? I just thought Bethesda and just boom, Maryland just popped in there. <laughs> I just sit down. Can you play the last, um, the last service from the last sermon of the last... Um, <laughs> Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. <laughs> That's a good one. We'll have to keep that one. It was fed by a spring. And it was a place where people would come down and, and, and they could bathe in it. You know, it was just a, a clean water pool that was there. And people would go there. there. The religion, there was a legend amongst their religion that said, every now and then an angel will come and stir the water. You don't see the angel. The angel's invisible. But the angel would come and stir the water, and whenever you see the water stirred, if you're sick, if you're uh, lame in some way, you've got some kind of physical malady, the first person in the water gets healed. If you're second, sorry. And so every day these people would gather at this pool, and this man was there, and he thought he believed in this religion, this legend. You know, I don't know what caused the water to be stirred. Maybe, you know, it's being fed by a spring, and, and so maybe something gushes up and, and what have you. But, but the water would stir, and, and religion causes people to trust in all kinds of things that can't deliver. That's what it does. 
You've seen, some of us remember the old days of, of classified ads in the newspaper, you know. And there's always in the newspaper in the classifieds, there's a section where people will say, if you pray this prayer, such and such will happen to you. Have you seen those before? Well, if you haven't seen them in the, in the classifieds, you've seen this kind of junk on Facebook. If you copy and share this and paste it, you know, and share it with 10,000 people, then God's going to do this or that. You're going to be blessed in this way or another. That's a bunch of baloney. And if I see you post it, I'm going to think you're really stupid. <laughs> I will. In fact, just because I've told you that, next time you post something like that, I'm just going to, you are stupid. And, um, and, and don't be upset with me. I've already warned you about it. Here's what religion is. Religion is all about human effort to get to God. That's what religion is. Human effort. What can I do? And while the blind, lame, and paralyzed were gathered around the water, they were, here's, here's the irony of the story. They're staring at the water. They're waiting for the water to stir because I'm going to get in first. And they're focused on the water. They were, uh, they were oblivious to the fact that the healer was in their presence. Jesus was there. And they didn't even know it. They didn't even recognize him. They had no clue who he was. You see, religion, what it does, they're focused on the water that can't do anything for them. Religion makes men spiritually blind and lame and paralyzed. The man told Jesus, I can't get anybody to get me down into the water. I can't make it. Somebody always beats me to it. Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man did. Well, the Jews, some of the Jewish people, the the religious leaders, they didn't see the miracle happen, but they saw the man carrying his mat. And they they said, what's up with this? They probably recognized him, but at least they knew, yeah, you're breaking the law. You can't do that. It's a Sabbath day. You can't pick up your mat on the Sabbath day. Yeah, never mind that his life was just changed. Never mind that he was just healed from a lifelong malady. And that's because religion is very quick to judge, and the Jews were great at it. You see, legalism is religion believing a whole bunch of rules. Legalism doesn't allow for mercy. Instead of looking at the man and saying, hey, haven't I seen you laying at the pool and waiting, and now you're walking? What? Tell me what happened. Man, I think that's great. They didn't think it was great. He was carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. But he didn't even know Jesus' name when they asked him, how did this happen? A man came to me and said, you want to be made whole? And I said, yes. And he said, pick up your mat. And I did, and I walked away carrying my mat. I, I forgot to ask who his name, what his name was. And Jesus had moved on. He didn't stick around. But later in the day, Jesus was in the temple, and the man went to the, I mean, the first thing he, you would think, and I appreciate this about the guy, the first thing he does after he gets healed is, he, I want to go and worship and praise God, maybe offer some sacrifice or something. But he shows up at the temple, and he sees Jesus, and he goes up to him. And he says, hey, I, I didn't get a chance to thank you, find out your name. And Jesus reveals, to me, he tells him his name, introduces himself to him. And the man goes and finds these Jews who, who inquire, well, who was it that did this? And he, and he says, I know his name. His name is Jesus. And John writes in chapter 5, verse 16, that the Jews then, at that point, the Jews then began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That was their, that's why they're mad. Down in Judea, he's doing these things on the Sabbath day. And you and I might think, I, don't you think that's a little bit petty? Come on, man, really? 
Doing these things on the Sabbath, we think it was petty. It was petty, but Jesus continued to do and say things that got them angry. He didn't stop. Why? Is he just an agitator? You can, I know some of you don't, won't believe this, but people have accused me of stirring things up. They said, so Rick, you're just an agitator. Right. Uh, Jesus was not just stirring things up just to stir things up. He wasn't agitating just to, He wanted them to see and know the truth. He wanted to expose the, 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 the heresy, the falseness of what they were doing, the religion, that they, the pettiness. He wasn't about to let them dictate to him what was right and what was wrong because he knew who he was. He was fully aware that he is, was the son of God. And he said to them in verse 17 of chapter 5, he said, well, my father's still working and I'm working also. Bingo. Whoa. What did he just say? Now he said, well, God works on the Sabbath, so I will too. And then he claimed to be God's son. So John tells us in verse 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. They started persecuting him, but now they're going to try even more to end his life. They're going to find a way. So now they just escalated their efforts and their intensity. Well, in Jerusalem, it, the, a movement began to, go, to come up amongst the Jewish leaders to, we've got to get rid of him. We need to stone him. Please understand that Jesus knew his mission on earth was included being killed. He knew that was part of why he was there. That wasn't a surprise to him. He had always known that. That had always been the plan, that he would die for our sins. But he also knew, I'm not going to die by being shoved off a cliff. He also knew, I'm not going to die by being pelted with rocks like Stephen, the first Christian martyr, would be in the book of Acts. He knew that wasn't going to happen as well. The Jewish method of execution, by the way, was stoning. They would pick up great big rocks and they would just begin to hurl them at the person that they were killing until they killed them with a horrible way of dying. He knew that wasn't going to happen. Well, after we're told in John 5 that the Jews began plotting to kill him, he did what any of us probably would have done. Get out of Dodge. And so he says to his disciples, let's go back up north to Galilee. So they go back up to Galilee in the north, and John 7 verse 1 tells us after this, they traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. He got out of Judea for the time being because it was not the time for his death. He wasn't running afraid. It wasn't time. There wasn't the correct moment for him to die. Because he knew also that the plan for his death was crucifixion. And if it's going to be crucifixion, it's not going to be the Jews who kill me. It's got to be the Romans because crucifixion was the Roman method of execution. That's why Pilate had to be involved. Pilate was the Roman governor. That's not come around yet, so let's move on. So he and his disciples go back up to Galilee for a visit. And then they go back after they've been up there for a while. He says, okay, let's go drop back down to Judea. They kept up and down and traveling on the road. They went back to Judea again. And the plots for his death continued. One way the Gospels, by the way, gives us a timeline. Here's how Bible scholars figure out how long Jesus was ministering on this earth from the time he was baptized until his resurrection, his ascension. 
One way they do that, the best way that they do that, is by looking at the mentions of the different festivals that the Jews observed, because they were all calendar events. And so he's back down in Judea, and, uh, and, and he's, he's down there for a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in the fall. Passover's in the spring. Tabernacles in the fall after the harvest. And John gives us this detail. John says, and the Jews were looking for him. They heard he was coming back. They heard he was in town. And they began looking for him. Now, amongst the Jewish people, however, the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. The Jewish people, however, were divided. Some said, he's telling us the truth. He's the Messiah. And other people said, no, he's a deceiver. But people were keeping quiet about him, especially those who were his disciples and were following him and believing him because they feared the Jewish leaders. Well, knowing that they were looking for him, he says, I'm not going to hide. But he taught publicly in the temple and there were a lot of crowds there at festival time and he was there with all the crowds and teaching and lots of people were, the Bible tells us, listening to his teaching and accepting him as their Messiah, which only added fuel to the fire amongst the Jewish leaders to assassinate him. And it was then that he did something that really embarrassed his enemies. Remember the story? We've talked about this on numerous occasions. The woman that's brought to him, caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. And they say, look, she was caught in adultery. The law says, stone her. She's condemned to die by the law. What do you say? And Jesus embarrassed them. And the way he embarrassed them was he said, he, he said, well, let's see. Who among you has never committed a sin? Whoever that is, you pick up the first stone and let it fly. He pointed out their own hypocrisy. He pointed out their own sin to them. And instead, to this woman, he offered her grace and he offered her forgiveness. And then he said, I, I, I always cannot tell the story without Jesus' last words to her. Now go and sin no more, saying to her, you have been transformed. You have been changed. I'm giving you new life. Now live differently because of what I've given to you. It was public knowledge by now that the priests and Jewish leaders wanted him dead. The conspiracy has leaked. And everybody knows it. It was no secret. And the people at the temple, again, Jesus is teaching and they're choosing sides. He's Messiah. No, he's an imposter. And John, some, he, John tells us that some in chapter 8, verse 44, wanted to seize him. But I find this interesting. But no one laid hands on him. They wanted to take him, but nobody would grab him. Nobody would, would uh, arrest him, if you will. So he continued teaching and his teaching got bolder and bolder. And he told them, you know what? I know what you guys are up to. There was no secret, not, especially not to him. They were trying to kill him. And here's why Jesus said they were trying to kill him. Get this verse. He said, it's because my word is not welcome among you. You don't like me. It wasn't a personality thing. It wasn't a political thing. It was you will not welcome my word. Now listen to what I'm about to say. I think this is important and a great application here. A society like theirs or like ours, a society that rejects Jesus and his word is destined for judgment. Any society. Jesus told them, hey, you know what's going to happen? You guys are going to die in your sins if you continue to reject me. That's what's going to happen. And that broke his heart. Why? Because the Bible says he came to seek and to save the lost. He was looking to give them life and they were rejecting him. 
So the next point in your notes is that Jesus was and is a polarizing figure. He divides. John 7.30 says something important about his, this quest to kill him, and it's something we need to know because it says a lot about the plan. And then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him. Now get this, because his hour had not yet come. What does that mean? It wasn't yet time for him to die. That's why. His hour had not yet come. It wasn't yet the time. And there would be another attempt to stone him. John tells a story about what Jesus had to say about Abraham. They were having a conversation, he and these Jewish leaders that were so, these hypocrites and all, and and he was telling them about Abraham. And they said, well, Abraham is our father, they, caught, they accused him of being illegitimate, you know, all kinds of things. And Abraham was our father. They revered Abraham. Abraham's the father of their race, the father of Isaac, the father of the 12 tribes. Abraham was the first of who they are. They revered Abraham. And then Jesus looks at him and says, well, you know what? Uh, I hate to tell you this, but you're not Abraham's children. Well, that really got them mad. You're not Abraham's children. Why? Because he said, because Abraham said that I would come, Messiah. Abraham was a man of faith in God's Messiah. You don't believe in me, so you're not Abraham's children. In fact, he said, you know whose children you are? You're children of the devil. The Jews who thought they had the only, you know, we're the only ones that know God, and they're mad because he said the Gentiles will one day. You're the devil's children. And he told them that. Then he said this to them. This, this is what kind of put him over the top. He said, in fact, before Abraham was, 2,000 some years ago, when Abraham lived, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was. He said, I am. Jesus taking the ever-present name of God, Yahweh, I am. And at that, John writes in John 8, 59, at that they picked up stones to throw at him. Here's another attempt to stone him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. I guess as they reached down to pick up the rocks, when they looked back up, where did he go? He just kind of went through the crowd and was gone. In Matthew 16, there's a story of just after Jesus noticed that he asked his disciples a question. He got his guys around him and he said, hey, fellas, you've been out in the public listening to people talk. Who do people say that I am? Some say you're this prophet and some say you're that prophet. Come back from the dead. Some say you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. And he says, okay, okay, that's what everybody's talking about. Who do you say that I am? And you're familiar with Peter. And Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. When Jesus realized, and the other disciples go, yeah, yeah, what Peter said. When Jesus realized that they understood who he was, the son of the living God, he knew now they're ready to hear the plan. Well, what's the plan? Verse 21 of chapter 16 of Matthew. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. He started telling them the plan. I'm going to be killed. We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me there. 
I'm going to be resurrected three days later. And two more times in the scripture, this is recorded that he tells them this. In Matthew 17, the next chapter, they had an experience Peter, James, and John did with Jesus called the transfiguration. He took these three guys, his closest friends, well, they went up to a mountaintop, and he was transfigured in front of them. What does that mean? They got to see Jesus. He was vis- visually changed in appearance from what he looked like then to what he looks like now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And they saw him in his glory. You say, what what did he look like? Read Revelation chapter 1. John sees him as well and describes him in that chapter. They saw him uh, transfigured. They saw him in his glory. And then he said it again. As they made their way south from Galilee to Jerusalem for their last Passover together, the third time, he says to them, the plan. But this time he gives an additional detail that he hadn't told them before. He said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, the title that he used for himself, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. Then, he hadn't told them this, then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be resurrected on the third day. I think that's pretty incredible that he would give that much detail of how he was going to die. There's not a person in this room who can tell us the details of how you're going to die. Nobody. You say, what about somebody that that has a suicide planned out? Not even that person, because we've all heard of failed suicides, haven't we? They try and it doesn't work. Nobody can plan out how they're going to die and in such detail, but Jesus did. This would be not a suicide, this is a murder, this is an execution of a guilty man, of a, of a man um, charging him with somebody else's crimes. Now, get this in your notes. This is important for us today as a church. Our message as Christians are, uh, is God's word, is Jesus' word. If you're a Christian, here's your message. We as a church, if we have anything to offer others, it is Jesus and what he said. By, and here's what I mean by that. You ought to have, at the very least, you ought to have John 3.16 etched in your heart. You ought to be able to pull that out at any time in any conversation because that one verse, those few words, there is enough gospel in that passage, in that verse that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus to save the entire world. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That is our message, that God loves you and sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. And that's polarizing. And if Jesus is polarizing, which means it was his words that made people mad, the things that he said and the things that he did, what do you think might happen when you or me or Nags Head Church says to the world around us, the community around us, the people that we come in contact with, listen, you need to hear the word of the Lord. And we begin telling them the things that Jesus said and that Jesus claimed. But really, we have nothing else to offer but Jesus' word because there's nothing else that can fix what's broken. Nothing else than Christ and his gospel. So once again, that story, they had the stones in their hands and he eluded them. Was he scared to die, by the way? 
The answer is no. His death had always been the plan to save sinful mankind. It was first taught in the Garden of Eden when God took the life of an animal and with that animal's hide covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. It was pictured when Abraham took his only son Isaac and as he was about to slit Isaac's throat as he lay on the altar, doing what God had told him to do, God, was his hand was raised with the knife, God said, stop. And God provided a ram to be sacrificed. It was predicted in the Psalms and in the prophets, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Think about these words. These are written by David a thousand years before Jesus. David didn't know what a Roman was, never heard of crucifixion. But the prediction of Jesus was, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. And get this, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Did any of that happen when Jesus died? All of it. And that's a thousand years before. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, a great passage about the death of the Savior, but he was pierced. For our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Jesus knew the plan, and he knew there was no other plan. The plot continues, even today, to be to silence the gospel. If you believe the gospel of Jesus, please hear me, Christian. If you believe the gospel of Jesus, you also believe that there is no other way to get to God but through him. You cannot say, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, I believe that maybe in other parts in the world that have other religions and other gods, those are alternative ways to the afterlife. You cannot believe that if you believe that Jesus is the son of God. It's impossible. And I say that because here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, a truth, a life. I'm thee, then this is it. No one gets to the Father except through me. And for saying that, his voice was silenced when those who disagreed with him nailed him to die on a cross. But the good news is others picked up his words and continued to say it. For example, one of his disciples said it this way in Acts 4.12. There is... There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. In other words, there's no place on earth where there's any other way of salvation. None. Peter, who said those words, how did he end up? He died on the executioner's cross as well. And here we are 2,000 years later. And neither Jesus' words nor the apostles' words are silenced. We, praise God, we have the freedom to speak them every Sunday here at Nags Head Church, and we'll continue to do so. Now, let's tell the truth, though. Politically correct words, they are not. They're offensive to many. Uh, Some of you know because at your workplace or with your neighbors, you've said the same thing that Jesus said. He's the only way. And you've had discussions about other religions. Well, do you think people that believe in in Islam and Allah, isn't he the same God? And you say, no, he's not. That Jesus is the only way. And so because of that belief that you have, you've been called things like being, you're narrow-minded, you know that? You're, you're You're a hater. You're a bigot. And now in this country, in the United States, efforts are being made to label such speech 
as hate speech when we say there's only one way, and that's Jesus. And if we continue as a culture, as a nation, as a society to slide as we have for a generation, away from the morals and the ethics that Jesus taught and stood for, we're going to see greater efforts to silence the gospel. I predict this. I'm no prophet, but I would not be surprised if the generation of pastors who follows me, if some of them aren't imprisoned for what they have to say from the scriptures. All right, you younger guys. Jesus knew his mission and he stayed on track. How did he keep from being distracted by all the attempts, the conspiracies, the efforts? He stayed on his mission. He knew his mission. And his mission was what? I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. That's what we have to do as well. Our mission here at Nags Head Church, we say it this way. Our mission is to love God, love others, and reach the world. That's our mission. And if we stay on track, we're going to be criticized. We're going to be ostracized. If we stay on track, some will throw stones and accuse us of hate and bigotry. If we stay on track, we might actually experience persecution one day in this country. I think the signs of it are all around us. I found it very interesting uh, in the news just in the last couple of days. It hasn't blown up yet because it was a weekend, but 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 the first person that's been nominated as a vice presidential candidate is the governor of Indiana, Pence is his name. I don't know, I don't know much about his politics. I don't know what he believes about the economy. I don't know what he believes about political things like gun control and, 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 and you know, war and military. I have no idea. But here's what I have found out about him. I have a friend who lives in Indiana. And a couple of days ago I said, what do you think of your governor? And, she, and her, her response was, this guy is a solid evangelical Christian. You know what's going to happen? Just mark my words. I told you so. In the next couple days, he's going to be attacked. There is a target on his back, not because of what he believes about the economy, not how he thinks trade ought to be accomplished with us and other nations, not even about what he might think about terrorism. You know, he's going to be targeted, and a target is on his back. He's going to be, they're, they're going to be out after him, and you're going to see it in the media, see it in the news, the talking heads, and all the, all the special interest groups and so forth, the, the, the activist groups are going to go after him. You know why? Because of his faith. Because he believes this book. Because he's a Christian. And they're going to attack him because he's a Christian. Here's what that means. If they will attack him, and they will, because of his Christian faith and how it forms his life and his worldview, they will attack you and me as well. What's to stop them? So watch the efforts to silence the gospel. Watch the attacks. Someone who knew well the hatred of those who rejected Jesus and the gospel one day found himself in prison writing a letter to a young church in the Greek city of Philippi. Here are the words that Paul said. In Philippians 1.6, he said, I'm, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was saying to the church, and he's saying to you and me, listen to me, Christ will never abandon you. And they were going to experience persecution as Christians in the Roman Empire. Christ will never abandon you. He's never going to leave you. He's going to remain faithful to you and the promise of God is he's going to see it through to completion, whatever it is he's called you to do. That gives me great hope, doesn't it, you? Yep, 
Let's bow our heads in prayer. You may be here today and, and you have trusted Jesus as your Savior. And you may have noticed that speaking up for Christ and speaking out his word in certain places doesn't win you any friends. In fact, people called you names and they've challenged you and maybe said bad things about you. But Jesus said, hey, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first and it hates it doesn't hate you so much, it hates me in you. If you're a Christian, the world is not going to accept the word of the Lord, if they, you know, except for those that really are interested and want to know. And that's why we keep sharing it. That's why Jesus didn't stop. And amidst all the division amongst the Jews in his time, we're told there that many became Christians, many became followers of Jesus as Messiah. So we can't give up because he doesn't give up on us. And maybe you're here today and let's just be real honest, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let me urge you to do so because he is the only way to God. There is no other way. And whatever you've been trusting in, other than him, it will not work. And you don't want to find yourself in a situation one day when you thought you'd done everything right, only to realize that you had done nothing right because you tried to do it all yourself. Put your faith and trust in Christ. At the end of the song, our pastors are going to come up and they're going to be standing here. They would love to talk with you, to pray with you. If you want to know how to become a Christian, they'll be glad to share that with you. People that came with you will wait for you, I promise. Father, your word speaks to our lives. Thank you for our Savior, Lord, who from the very beginning of his ministry, people were trying to kill him. But he continued to be faithful to the mission that you gave him. He never gave up. Help us to be like him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.